Hey, I can't hear you. Uh, That's better. You hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now we have you. It's okay, not, thank you. I'll start not, over. It's not Dove was the speaker. I see. Okay, I'll start over again then. Uh, so in the in the way in which uh, this year is developing, we we seem to be often be um, taking. Uh, one step back and two steps forward. So we'll be doing that again today. I'm going to review what we've done, um, adding hopefully in a couple, uh, a level or two, and then move on. As always, there are, we, you know, there, are, there are ambitions, but I'm starting to realize that to really construct a, uh, a serious logic theory of triage will take time. Uh, so I'm not going to push. Um, and as long as it takes, as long as it takes, uh, as many sure as it takes, um, we'll do them. Uh, what I said, this the source sheet uh, today. Uh, which you should see on screen is a little different than the previous ones in that it includes my notes and I'm going to be following um, the outline and you can follow uh, so you can follow how I put the sheet together on paper and not just um, and not just listening to me and we'll see if that helps for clarity um, or not and I'll try and stop uh, fairly regularly for questions and of course you can use the chat for questions um, as well uh, since I'm not always reliable about stopping and I still haven't figured out how to look for the raised hand thing uh, okay, so we began everything with a claim about this sugya, um, right? This sugya in Sanhedrin, and the claim was that this sugya answers the question, how do I know that I can't kill someone to save my own life by claiming that's a svara? And then makes the radical move of saying that there is another pasuk in the Torah, the hekesh between Ritzeach and Aramirasa, that depends on your having that svara in advance. And um, and therefore, that means that this svara has to be prior to the Torah, right? The Torah assumes that when you come to interpret it, you already have this svara. And I tried to um, to formulate that svara as a claim that you cannot act in a way that denies the ontological equality of all human beings. Okay, and we're going to see how I rooted that in uh, the Ramam and Rav Chaim um, again in a minute. Um, I want to point out that ontological equality is a very tricky category and is going to get us in trouble as we go on because you can be ontologically equal but and yet acknowledge inequality in other ways. In the same way that the Declaration of Independence, Lahabdil says that um, all human beings are created equal. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're created equally intelligent, uh, equally charming, um, right? Just, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a claim about ontology. Um, now, the question is, why should uh, issues of life-saving depend on ontology? Perhaps they should depend on a crude value, right? On virtue, right? What have you done with your with your life? Uh, perhaps we can talk about the kedusha of your body as a kedusha, as distinct from the kedusha of your soul, right? And so maybe the body of a coin is right in some way, um, you know, has has this value in a way that the, the that the value of a levy doesn't, but has nothing to do with the value of the human being. Okay, what about social value, um, pragmatic value, all those sorts of things, right? So the way I framed it is entirely about ontological value, and that's a tricky big move. 
Okay, so then we say the first challenge to that notion that the the point that the the meaning of the svara is you can't act in a way that denies ontological equality is the mission of Olot, which says that you can choose the mother over the fetus, um, but you can't choose the mother over the infant. So that seems to, the, the, the fact that you can choose the mother over the fetus suggests that we're making a claim. Uh, we're, we're evaluating difference. Now we can say that's no contradiction at all. We can say that that's because that the, the, the relevant ontological category is nefesh, endochinefesh bifsei nefesh, and what, we re, what we're asserting here is that a fetus is not a nefesh. Okay, and maybe the principle of who says your blood is redder doesn't apply to things that are not a nefesh and a fetus is not a nefesh. Now, whether a fetus is a nefesh or not is you know, problematic. There are places in the rabbinic literature, even the Rambam, where it is and places where it isn't. Um, but what interests me uh, specifically was, the claim, was, right, was that the Rambam, um, uh, the, the, that the... Um, the Raman, the Raman himself um, does not accept this interpretation. Instead, he feels compelled to introduce the category of Rodev, right? He says, the reason, the reason that you can prefer the uh, mother to the fetus is because the fetus is considered a Rodev. And the question is, why? Why doesn't Raman just say that the, um, that the mother's blood is redder than the fetus because the mother is an effish and the fetus isn't? So, um, right, so the Raman introduces Rodev to, right, in order to prevent you from saying that. So now the question that Rav Chaim asks, and I'm translating his thought process as opposed to doing it in the, in, the, um, in the nominally halachic manner that he does, and we'll talk at the end about whether that's justified. So Rav Chaim's question is, by the end of the day, the mother's blood is redder. The fetus isn't a full person halachically, so why shouldn't you be able to choose? So Rav Chaim's answer is that um, when we talk about the question of whether you're allowed to kill to save your life, we talk about that on a legislative level as opposed to a case level. What I mean by that is that you ask the question not, can I, right, can I, A, kill B to save my life? The question is, can a person um, right, commit sin, sin X in order to save their life? And that question can be asked with either party as the subject or the object. Difficult to think of it, the fetus as a subject, and that's an issue that we might have to come back to. But let's take it as a given, as a given for now, because we'll see there are cases other than fetus. And therefore, the Rama says, at the time that we ask the question, which life do you prefer? Since killing the fetus, the Rama seems to assume, is the right is a sin that involves the loss of a nefesh. Um, right, the sin involves it, whether the case is does or does not issue. But there are there are. This, the sin of killing a fetus is also a sin that sometimes involves the killing of an effish. And therefore, if Chaim says, therefore, when you ask the question, can I commit the, the sin that is, of which killing a fetus is an example, of which, right? Killing it, let's be, to be clear, killing a, a fetus at the moment of birth. We don't have to talk about the question of at what point the fetus reaches this category. Killing a fetus the moment before birth, according to Chaim, although it's not, um, it's not a capital crime, it is a crime. And there are other victims of that crime who certainly do qualify as a pure nefesh. And therefore, when you ask the question, should the exception of the chaybahem apply to uh, apply to the um, to this avera? The answer is not, and you cannot commit this avera to um, to save your life. Okay. So Rav Chaim also said that this explains why the Raman disagrees with Tosfot about whether the svara is reversible. Um, that Tosfot says that just like you say, who says your life is better than his, well, why can't you also say that 
um, that you're, that uh, why can't you say who says that his blood is greater than mine? And so we should be able to reverse this aura. And if I have a choice of passively murdering somebody to save my life, I should be able to stand still, even if standing still constitutes an act of murder. Uh, so Rechayim says the Ram disagrees because the Ram because of the Ram's legislative approach. But we should point out that it's not obvious that the Ram has to disagree. There's nothing. There are two steps that are necessary to make the Ram disagree with Tosfot. One is you have to take Rechayim's legislative approach, and the second is you have to say that thinking on a level of law, when I have a clash between Vachaybahem and whatever the sin is on the level of law, I don't say that these two. Um, these two cancel each other out, and therefore I have to be passive. I don't say, right, I don't say you're stuck at a standstill because the two laws stand each other off. Instead, Rav Chaim says, what I say is I'm left with the lotase because v'chayim the exception doesn't apply to the lotase. But if I think of it not as v'chayim not as an exception, but simply as a competing mitzvah, you could get to Tosavot's result using Rav Chaim's reconstruction of the Rambam's thought process. And that's important because we're going to have to see, what we'll see is that um, there are really three stages in this process all the way through. There's what's your underlying svara, there's what's your legal theory, and then there's what, how do you paskin? And those, you know, and you can get from, um, you know, many of those, you, there's some places you can't get there from here, but there are a lot of places that you can get, you can get there from here or there, it doesn't matter, um, right? So we should, we should be aware of that. Okay. Um, Okay, and then um, Sir Chaim says, says that, uh, so we have to explain, if this is really true, right, and I'm, I'm going to assume that I'm correct in Chaim, if this is really true, that at the end of the day, um, there's never, right, you can never commit an Avera um, that involves someone else's, losing someone else's life in order to save your own life. So why do we paskin like Rabbi Akiva and say that your life comes first? Certainly there is some kind of Avera in letting the other person die. At the very least, it should be Los Amro Damriacha. We'll see that gets problematic uh, probably uh, on Thursday. Um, so why should I be able to violate my, my obligation not to stand idly by the other person's blood in order to save my life? So, right, that was Dov Weinstein's question. And Rechaim says, well, the answer is that in that case, it would be absurd because standing pat leaves the two of you dead. Whereas, right? So we have to make a choice. So the choice we make is that your life comes first. But really, it's not so absurd because we could say that you know, the Chazanisha's argument is that what Ben Petora's claim when he says that you, when he says that if two people are walking in the desert and there's one canteen and Ben Petora says you should split it before Rabbi Kiva comes along and says that your life comes first. Um, so Ben Petora's logic is that the two of you will live for at least a few hours, or one of you will live for a very long time. Maybe two lives for 20 minutes are more valuable than one life for 20 years. How do you know? So there's nothing obvious about the absurdity of Ben Petora's result. And secondly, Dov said, look, if we're all basing this on a, on a svara, so whatever, and we think the svara is so obvious, and in my claim, the svara is pre-Torah, right? Life's language, it's a natural law principle. Um, so if that's really true, so then how can there be absurd results? Okay, so here's what I claim, and this is, right, this is, I think, the core of what I'm trying to argue in this series of shurim, well, it's the first core of what I'm trying to argue, maybe the second. The first core I'm trying to argue is that the principle is ontological equality and not to act in a way that defies that. Um, the second core is to understand how halacha relates to that fundamental principle. What I argued is that the Ram says in various places that law is a blunt instrument. The whole nature of law is that it deals with abstractions and therefore, by definition, 
Allah can never get every case right because it's always going to overlook, um, be unable to deal with details, with particulars. So all Allah can ever strive to do is to get you the right, the best result for most people in most right, most of the time in most places. But what I want to argue is that possibly a complex system of interrelating laws enables you to better approximate the goal, right, the, um, the, the underlying ethical case-by-case principle than a single law. And there may be reasons, right, so we have to take it as a given, or, uh, there's a given that we're not going to just legislate, people should always behave this way. We're not, we're not going to just leave halacha at the level where you could say that my chazid, who says your blood is redder, becomes a principle like kedoshim to you. Right? Do the right thing, and we're not going to tell you with any more precision what the right thing is. So Rechaim thinks that's a bad idea, I think. At least Rechaim thinks the Ramam thinks that's a bad idea. And I think it's um, not hard to figure out why he thinks that's a bad idea. The reason I think it's a bad idea is that people will often find excuses to believe that their blood is redder than somebody else's. And therefore... Rechaim thinks that the best way to yield results that are compatible with the svara is to prevent people from asking the question, my chazi. It's ironic, right? It's because we ask the question, therefore we have to prevent people from asking the question. Um, and in context, in context where they might have where they might have an answer. So Rechaim develops this idea that right, that my chazi functions legislatively, even though obviously. Right, my chazid is right in its its core. Right, it was it's presented as in an actual case, right, involving people, and the embodiment of it should be about the ontological equality of persons, not the ontological equality of the law of b'chayim or the iser of resichas damim, whatever it may be, but a resicha. But I think the claim is that the best way to get people to behave in accordance with the svara of my chazid is to have the principle applied legislatively rather than personally. But that will inevitably lead to contexts where there are false results, results that are not actually compatible with the svara. Because guess what? There are really places where some, perhaps, where some blood's redder than another. For example, if someone's not a nefesh. So how do we allow abortion to save the mother's life in light of this principle? So the answer is, okay, we introduce um, another, a, a, another complicating factor, which is rodev. Uh, what about the result that will end up with both people dying instead of one? Well, we'll introduce the principle of Okay, so that's right. So that's what my, the vision of halacha I'm setting up is that halacha is intended to come as close as possible to the ethic represented by the question my chazid, but it doesn't legislate the question my chazid. It sets up a very complicated interlocking system intended to implement the underlying svara of my chazid. Okay, so now I want to throw in, this is something that we have not talked about before, um, so I want to throw in a complicating, um, perhaps philosophic factor. Um, there is a work uh, called um, Taking Issue um, by Rabbi Dr. Um, Rabbi Dr. Baruch Brody, Zechrona um, Levracha, and a really excellent um, halachic ethicist for a bunch of really important things. And he has an article um, called pluralistic moral theory, um, in which he argues that halacha is not committed to the standard abstractions among which, or which or, you know, the ideological abstractions of moral theory. So here I'm going to leave aside his technology, but I thought that was valuable, and I'm going to say something that is basically along the lines of what he said, but I'm not, I, 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 um, I'm not sure that I'm using his terminology exactly. 
There are fundamentally three ways of um, thinking about ethics. One is consequentialist, which means that we look at the impact of your decisions um, on the world. Um, now, there's a version of that called utilitarianism, which was we look on the impact in terms of other people's pleasure and pain, but there are other ways which we could think about impact other than um, other than pleasure and um, pleasure and pain. That's one version. We look at consequences in the world outside you. Then there's a vertical virtue ethics, which we look at the impact on your character. And then there's a vertical deontological ethics, which is we're not interested in the impact on the world, we're not interested in the impact on you. What we're interested in is were right, were, were right things or wrong things done? Actions have rightness or wrongness in themselves. So what Baruch Brody says is that halacha doesn't seem to be take a consistent position about this. There are halachot that assume you know, some kind of consequentialist calculation. There are halachot that seem focused entirely on virtue, and there are halachot that seems to assume uh, that there are there are, that properties are that actions are wrong or right in of themselves. So it might be that um, one way to think about that complication, which, which um, Brody celebrates, but we might not celebrate if we're into certain kinds of consistency. It's an interesting question. Uh, but maybe one way of, of thinking about it is that halakha generally, and he actually uses this example, I think, as an issue, but halakha generally is a, understands that it is a legal system, that a legal system is not the same thing as an ethical system. And so the in order to achieve underlying principles, it's willing to set up legal systems that function either on consequentialist, virtue, or deontological bases, and it doesn't have a need for consistency regarding that. Okay, that's the um, that's the first basic introduction that we have. I'm claiming underlying principle, which is ontological equality. I'm claiming that halacha is an attempt to implement that principle, but not an attempt to implement that principle as one law, but to implement that principle as a set of laws. And I'm arguing that this is uh, the result, at least, whether, whether it's the intention or not, I don't know, but it's the result, at least, of the way in which Rav Chaim interprets the Rambam. But I'm also acknowledging that that doesn't mean that this commitment commits me to the specific outcomes of the Rambam, although I am very attracted by them. Uh, in many cases, but it commits me to thinking that way, realizing that um, you can change uh, side assumptions, as for example, whether Bechaibem is an exception or just a, a, competing, uh, a competing mitzvah and get um, different results. Okay, then I said, you know, Rabbi Clapper, you're setting this, you know, this up as this fundamental principle of Svara, right? Natural law. Who says your blood is greater than his? But there's a mission, Harios. Mishnah Harios says that uh, some people's blood is greater than others. Okay, all right. Um, right. Right. What matters to us is So if lachayot means to save lives, so then we right the whole principle of ontological equality goes out the window. Um, so uh, I showed you last time, and I'm going to try and do it in more detail that there are a number of ways to remove. That Mishnah from the Lachi calculus, um, I should say, it's not the calculus about triage. Okay, so here's number one is we simply pass him against the Mishnah. This is the approach taken by Rechaim David Alevi uh, in one of his collections, Shutim, called Shut Mayim Chaim. He says as follows So, what does he mean by Hashmatat So, we pointed out last time that this halacha does not show up 
in the Rambam or the uh, or the Tur or the Mechaber. Um, and he goes so far as to claim that even though it does appear to show up in the Ramah, uh, the Levush reinterprets the Ramah because he couldn't imagine that the Ramah would put it back in when it had been taken out by the uh, right by the Rambam, uh, the Tur, and the and the Shulchan Aruch. Right, so, and he says, because it's utterly, right, it's utterly astonishing at its core. And especially, he says, according to the Svar of the Rambam, the way the Rambam explains the mission is Havamina is that men are chayiv in all mitzvot and women are not. But I gotta say, if, if, right, so he doesn't believe that that can reflect ontological value, right, that's, I think, I think Rechayin David Levi is fundamentally sharing uh, the approach I'm offering. Is how could you possibly claim that one life has precedence over another? If you're going to claim that the, that the way the Ramam explains in the Mishnah that the men are chayiv in all mitzvot, and he thinks that's okay, if, if you read, we read the whole truth, he doesn't believe that relates to ontological equality, to ontol, right, to ontological value, he thinks it relates to some kind of uh, social, social value, he says, but if that's the case, it's still going to depend on behavior, and it's possible that the man is a born Amaretz, and the woman is is and she has more zchuyot, so she's better for the community, I guess, than the man. So how could you, if they have halacha as a presumption that men go first, it will always be a suffix. It's impractical. Right? And we point out this is a fine reading of the Mishnah, which ends with Mamzer Talmud Chacham Kohen Gadol, Mamzer Talmud Chacham Kohen the Kohen Gadol Amaretz. So the... Um, the way the Yaseh, the Mayim Chaim, Rechendar Levi reads it, is that this line doesn't undermine the whole Mishnah. It's not a, uh, it's not a subversive line, but that line is universally agreed. Then when you think about it, right, it doesn't make sense to Paskin like the Mishnah because the first question you should always ask is, who's the bigger Talmud Chacham? You're never going to be able to, right, or, or whatever it may be, you're never going to be able to answer that. And that question is always going to be more important. The only time we'd ever care about men and women in its own principle is if they were exactly equal because, he, right, because we understand that learning takes precedence. Therefore, he thinks in practice, this, right, it just couldn't make sense to Paschal like this Mishnah. And therefore, he says, right? says, The Mishnah really said it. And the Mishnah, but he says the Mishnah was not based on ontological value. It was based on some kind of uh, subsequent, some, some kind of subsequent obtained value or on social value. And in any case, we just don't paskin like it. Okay. Second possibility is to say that, we, that the Mishnah, even though it says lachayot, doesn't mean pikoch nefesh. And this is a position taken by the Tzitzeliezer. And he says, I can prove to you it's not talking about pikoch nefesh because the Rishalmi on this Mishnah says, ksut eshet chaver. You have a choice between finding clothing for the wife of a member of the Chaver circle or just or the life of an Amaris, right? That's all you have money for. So the Ksut of the, uh, of the wife of a Chaver, uh, maybe it means a woman who's, woman who's a Chaver, um, precedes the, the life of an Amaris. So it sounds like she has to be the wife. Uh, probably, although again, I don't know, 100%. Um, and he says, but Okay, so you know, so the, uh, right, the, Asel um, said that the reason that this Mishnah can't be Alacha is, so he has his own svara, which makes this Mishnah impossible. Okay, the, 
Um, right? And the um, since Eliezer has his own svara, he says, and there's no way in his svara that you could ever possibly say that the kavod of a chaver precedes the life of an amaretz. So rather, he thinks right? It just means who do you give money first? And if you can't, they don't have enough money, they can go somewhere else. Right? It's not actually talking about real, um, real pikuach nefesh. Okay, and this decision is also taken by Rav Asher Weiss in a video for Aguda, where he says, you know, if anybody's thinking about mission harios, the mission harios talking about stucca and that kind of stuff. Not, it has no re- relevance to medical ethics at all. Okay, we can take a uh, a position lesser than the um, less lesser than the asel Kharab, which is that the idea that a crude virtue always takes priority makes the Mishnah ridiculous, and just say that, right, and say, therefore we don't possibly like the Mishnah, and say we do possibly like the Mishnah, but we just can't use it. So this is what the says in the says in the Rambam. But he says, Yotzei Shudinze, Ein lo chalot, Ela rak ima mudubar b'ish v'kayim kol mitzvot k'fish mitzvah, Ava l'acheret lo. Uv mikresh yisha ken kemed mitzvot motel v'leo, v'ish lo, azai mitapechadin, v'ishakodemet. Right, so therefore, it makes sense that the Rambam couldn't mention this halacha because it won't come up. It always depends on circumstances. Okay, that's a little weaker. I like this as uh, overall rejection. Okay, then there is a group that just says, you know, I don't know why we can't use this Mishnah, we just don't. Um, so Shlomo Zalman says an interesting thing. He says, But he has a line in there. In the terms of, of saving from a captivity, um, in terms of tzedaka, and he says, but I think it's very difficult to do that nowadays. So it's not clear what he thinks the mission is really about because he says, Hatsalami Shevi, not from not from Nevish. But anyway, he just says, I think in our time it's hard to behave this way. Now, why is it hard to behave this way? I don't know. We saw last time that the Shutlarot Natan suggested that there are social factors that allow us to overrule this Hakdama. If you all paid for uh, if you all paid for your boat tickets, you also paid for the life-saving efforts of the crew. And I suggested that maybe this extends to uh, right to paying for national health insurance, uh, right, paying for health insurance cooperatives. So there are ways. It doesn't explain exactly what they are. Uh, Rav Moshe says, right, it's difficult to do it without a lot of investigation. So these, these, right, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Rav Moshe don't seem to reject the, um, to reject the Mishnah out of hand. They don't pass against it the way they say the Harav does. They don't claim that it's, um, that it's simply impossible, that, that it's not talking about Bikoch Nefesh necessarily. Um, they don't even claim it's really impossible to implement. They just claim it's very hard to implement. In Piske Corona, Herschel Schechter has a position that seems to be um, somewhere in the middle. Um, I should say that this position, that this has been revised. There was an earlier version which seemed to be much more open to using some kind of criteria for the Mishnah Hurios. Uh, a number of people, not just, not just me, um, you know, gave feedback that that perhaps was inadvisable. And so this is the clarification that um, that came forth, which I'm assured is does not reflect a change in position, but is um, simply a clarification. Um, 
The Mishnah, the end of Harios, there, right, we bring this order. And in the end, it says, precedes even the Kohen Gadol Amaretz. And look at the Groh and Yerodea, uh, Simon Rishon and Aleph, right? Um, right, so he, who quotes the, um, the Yerushalmi about this, fine. Um, V'nireh, sh'akoveya b'zehu sh'makdimim l'hatzil etzeh sh'akilat sh'chalo b'yoter. So Roshachter says, it seems to me that the basis of the Mishnah is that we save the one whom the community needs most. Right? That's an interesting interpretation of the Mishnah. And he says, take a look at Gris Moshe, who says that it's hard to do. Believe you in Gadol. And then he says, now why is it hard to do? And he tells you, basically, the logic of the Vasei Lecharav and the Rechendev Levi and the Tzitzeliezer. Because uh, right, the reason in the Mishnah must be that women keep more mitzvot um, than men, have more mitzvot than men, because women have to wrote mitzvot of seishas mangrama, and that apparently equals greater social utility. But nowadays, he says, there are many women who learn Torah and, and engage in mitzvot more than men. And the principles of the Mishnah, says Rosh Shechter, are, 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 are founded on the pr- assumption that if you follow this, pr- this order, we would get more results for the community, and that's not true anymore. Right? So Rashad says that the Mishnah is socially contingent, and the social contingencies of the Mishnah no longer apply. Uh, right? And now he says, how do you know if, if what the community needs? Now he says, my chazit. So now, I don't know why who the community needs is subject to the question of my chazit, that it seems you could think is an empirical model, but since he defines what the community needs in terms of mitzvot, so maybe he means what the community needs in terms of being, passing judgment in Rosh Hashanah. I'm really not sure. Um, and therefore he says, because of this, um, of this shift in society so that the presumptions of the Mishnah no longer apply, the accepted practice among poskim is not to follow this Mishnah. So we have seen many poskim of whom that's true. Um, whether it's universally true or not is something that we'll explore in forthcoming shurim. But then Rosh Hashanah says a fascinating thing. He says, But what he's been talking about up till now is what happens if you have a very elderly person uh, with no, no capacity of, say, living more than at the most six months, um, regardless of being put on a ventilator, and you have a very young, healthy person other than the fact that they have COVID-19. So Rav Shechter says that, that on the basis of the Mishnah, we are entitled to put, the, um, to put the younger person on the respirator rather than the, uh, rather than the elderly person if they come in at the same time. And then maybe even if, um, if at, right, maybe, maybe even if you know the younger person is coming in at the time that the older person comes in, or if you know that someone like the younger person is coming in, at the time the elderly person is coming in, you don't have enough ventilators, you won't put the elderly person on the ventilator in the first place. Uh, right? So he clarifies very much, it doesn't mean that if you have a 30-year-old and a 60-year-old, and they're both in roughly the same health, that you choose a 30-year-old and a 60-year-old, it's only at this marginal case where the elderly person cannot um, live more than what we'll call chayesha. So this is right. This right. So Shechter, uh, on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, he he signals his agreement with the Igros Moshe and the others that you can't act on the basis of these principles. On the other hand, he asserts that the basis for the result he's reaching is an implementation is an implementation of these principles in another factor. 
and then he contains it in a way which may or may not be convincing to you um, that it, you know, that even though this criteria is sufficient to enable you to choose chayei olam over it doesn't enable you to to choose the actuarial odds of a younger person living longer than an older one. Um, so that's, I guess, the closest to that we've seen to actually implement allowing these principles a role. He thinks that they're not incomprehensible, uh, they're not unknowable in all cases. And therefore, if you can find another principle that is easier to discover than uh, virtue or than community needs, you can use it. Okay. Um, in Ravashar Weiss's same video, he says, uh, quote, I saw, I transcribed this. I saw some Rabbanim writing that a person who is of greater service to the community should have greater priority. I disagree with that. Who is the one to decide who is of greater service to the community and who not? So I'm not sure um, whether he's intending to disagree with Roshachter uh, or not, it might be that he was intending to disagree with the earlier version of Schechter, and he wasn't shown the um, he wasn't shown the modified version. I'm really not sure, uh, but he seems you know, Rav Asher Weiss is very clear that we shouldn't have a havamina of using such of such such ideas. Okay, uh, let's show you for interest. You know, you know how Rav Moshe, even though he says he can't use it, nonetheless, uh, Rav Moshe still has to deal with the underlying thing. How is it that the Mishnah allows, in principle? Kadima Bhatsala when we said my chazit in the um, in the case of killing somebody else, right? Why should that be uh, right? Why why isn't that a contradiction, right? So we said that Rav Chaim said that uh, resolved this contradiction by saying that it's not really different. It's the only the only time we say your life your life precedes is when the result of his system would be absurd. Um, but Sir Moshe does not assume that's the answer, and he says. Um, he says, what, is, what happens by murder? What happens by murder, he says, is right? So that's, that's Svarah, who says your blood is redder, is clear when you see that, that God has set up this situation specifically. What does that mean? Because when you see that this is, this is the decree of God, you can't say maybe my blood is redder, even if you know that you're actually a better person than the person you're being asked to kill. Right? And even if right, it's entirely clear, right, there's a strong presumption. That if both of you were in danger, there's only one to save, everyone would recognize that you were the one to save and not the other guy. Right, following the the parameters of Mishnah Harios, right? So you are the Kohen Gadol Talmid Chacham, and standing next to you is a Mamzer Amaretz. Okay. Nonetheless, he says, "V'yavshu Talmid Chacham v'chaver Amaretz, asur le'Talmid Chacham la'vorla v'tzichat Amaretz k'deish v'leherig." You still can't kill the Amaretz to avoid your being killed. Now, why not? If the Mishnah Harios is intact, and the Mishnah Harios seems to suggest that there's a relevant kind of value that enables you to choose one life over another. And he says, well, why can't you do it? Right? You have to say, you use the svara who says your blood is redder, even though you know your blood is redder. Even though, right, even though that svara, he says, seems like a contradiction to the mission in Herios. And a contradiction to our recognition that a, that, that a Talmud Chacham has given more value to his life than Amaretz. Okay? Um... Right, he says, so what's, what's the, uh, right, so what's the answer is, right, so just because 
God commands that you should be told to kill the person doesn't mean that person should die. Uh, right? Because if there was this exerit, the person should die, then God would just have the person, the, the person threatening you kill him, and now that you should kill them. Because Rabbi Shah says, they never decree in heaven that you have to violate Isurim, because that's Akol B'nei Shemayim, Chutz Meirat Shemayim. Therefore, the Xera must be on, there must be Xera Shemayim for you, that the only, right, that, that you have to, um, right, that you have to die. And then the temptation is, but you can save yourself by killing this person. So we can see, therefore, that God doesn't actually love you more than the, right, love you more than the, the Amaretz, that God actually thinks you're equivalent. Right? This is very, very fancy. And I, uh, I'm not going to you know, investigate whether you can find it compelling or not compelling. What I want to say right here was summarize where we are, uh, where we are now. And this, this um, brings us up to the new material for this, for this year. Um, I have a prince. I, I have a, a principle which is that you have to always act in accordance with ontological equality, and I'm claiming that what that the system is all set up to create that. In order to do that, I really have to cut the mission in Hurios pretty much out. The mission in Hurios is a frontal challenge, a frontal challenge to the notion that um, that one that all lives are ontologically equal, and even though people have approaches that say it's it acknowledges ontological equality, but it it right, but it gives it gives importance to other kinds of inequality. I have grave difficulty with those, grave difficulty. Um, so I wanted, to, but I wanted to show you that there are ways. Just about everybody agrees that in practice, we don't follow the mission and hurios, except in a very extreme. In practice, it just doesn't come up. But it matters a great deal how you choose it. If you say we paskin against it, so then it has no role in halacha. If you say that it has nothing to do with life-saving, then it has no role in our halacha. If you say that it has no role in triage because we don't know how to implement it, so then it leaves space for saying, but what about the cases we do know how to implement it, right? So there's Rav Schechter saying, there's one case where I do know how to implement the fundamental principle that we're allowed to make choices among lives. Uh, because now Rav Schechter says that's not a denial of ontological equality, it's just that, right, some, that ontological equality is not the defining characteristic. Okay, so I wanted to set that up, right? That, that different ways, people have different understand, people have different ways of reading the Mishnah out. And a lot of them have ways of reading the Mishnah out that only exclude the specific choices in the Mishnah, but allow, but open the possibility of making other choices among human beings. Okay, now I want to. We get, right, so now when we talk about the issues of triage, so again, nobody, um, to my knowledge, in halacha is raising nowadays the possibility, although we'll see uh, Thursday that it hasn't um, always been completely out of the parsha. Nobody is, is suggesting that we save men before women or kohanim before levim, but we have choices among patients, which are largely based on uh, savability, right, odds of survival, length of survival, prior medical condition, things like that. And the question is, uh, what sorts of choices do we allow you to make in terms of the distribution of scarce resources or even of the movement of resources from one person to another? And, um, and then maybe the extreme case of those resources, if the person is actually hooked up to a specific machine and we're going to unhook the person from that machine to somebody else. And then the extreme, extreme version of that is when unhooking the person from that machine actually causes them damage as opposed to simply 
denying, um, denying them the benefits of the machine. And there'll be fuzzy gray areas um, where it's not clear that what you're doing is denying a benefit or actually causing them damage. So I want to, um, I want to do with you now uh, what I think is the fundamental um, case where all these ish, right, where those two fundament, where those two perspectives fundamentally differ. The, the right one perspective, which says we reject the Mishnah and Hurios because we don't want to choose among lives. We want to set as the strongest default we can that all people are equal. And then when there are cases we have to choose otherwise, we'll find workarounds, as opposed to the approaches which says no. Actually, fundamentally, we do want to make choices, but there are reasons that we can't always make all the choices we might want to we might we might want to make. Okay, so here is approach number one. This is in the responsa of the Noda Bihuda Madura Tinyana. Noda Bihuda, right, was the chief rabbi of Prague. He lives from 1713 to 1793. And he deals with a question that should be familiar to all of us. Umashatam alarambam perik alef mirosech halachatet. Right, so you, his interlocutor, were bothered. Why does the Ram introduce the category of Rodef to allow abortion to save the life of the mother? But typically, and his interlocutor said, we should have been able to get the same result, even if we don't take the admittedly somewhat stretched position that we view the fetus as a Rodef, or Ginoto, we should still be able to, to kill the fetus to save the mother because it's not a capital crime to kill a fetus. So we should be able to kill the fetus, which is not a capital crime, to save the mother, because killing the mother is a capital crime, and therefore the mother is the mother's blood is redder than the fetus's. Okay, to which the Nobidus says something fascinating. It says, I am astonished at your question on the Rambam. If your logic is right, if you say that given a choice between two people, one of whom it's a capital crime to kill, and one of whom it's not a capital crime to kill, right? So you're saying, well, it's not a capital crime to kill the fetus. If it's not a capital crime to kill the fetus, it is a capital crime to kill the mother. So the mother wins. So let's kill the fetus to save the mother. Who needs Rodif? The Nodibita says, if that's the case, so let's take the category called Trefa. Right? Trefa is a person who has a, let's say for now, a, a Trefa is a person who has a, uh, a, literally has a hole, right? Who has some kind of um, lack of structural integrity in a vital organ that we presume halakhically will kill you within a year. So Nodibita says, if you're right, so the halakha is, that if you kill a human being who is a trefa, that is not a capital crime. So if it's true, says Nebuchadnezzar, that, you, that it's not a capital crime, to, that that's the criteria that, you can, that you're allowed to kill, pe- to kill people whom it's not a capital crime to kill in order to save people who is a capital crime to kill, so then one should be able to kill a trefa to save somebody who's not a trefa. For that matter, somebody who is right, somebody who's not a trefa should be able to kill someone who's a trefa for, right, um, for themselves, just like the mother can commit the abortion to save her own life. Because what we're saying is, this is an answer to the question, who says your blood is redder, right? The, the questioner says, I don't know what the Ram is talking about. It's obvious that the mother's blood is redder than the fetus's blood because we have an objective halachic criterion, which is that killing the mother is a capital crime. You get the death penalty for that. Killing the fetus is not. 
So the Buddha says, and that's true of everybody whom it's not a capital crime to kill. And the easy example is a trefa. Umap, right? He says, but I've never heard of that. He says, Zeh, right? Is it really permitted to kill a trefa to save a sholem? Zeh lo shumana me'olam. Nobody ever said this. In 17, somewhere between 1713, 1713 and 1793. Who cares whether you're chayev misa, whether you get the death penalty for killing the trefa? You're certainly doing an active violation when you kill a trefa. And our principle is that we violate Shabbat to save the life of even somebody who can only live for 10 seconds, who's got a year. And are you telling me that we violate Shabbat to save a life, but then we think that life is less valuable than another one? But he says, when it comes to saving the life person, if you don't save that person, and you're just being passive, and you're allowed to be passive in a choice among lives. Okay, so that video, I think, is working more within Tosfut than the Rambams. Um, but again, I, don't, I think that's separable from the fundamental principle of Rechaim. He says, I reject the idea that you can use the halachic punishment for killing somebody as a measurement of whether their blood is redder. I reject that idea, and the Rambam rejected that idea. That's why the Rambam had to use Rojef. And, and my proof of it, he says, is nobody would ever say that you can kill a trefa to save a shalem. Okay, well, that's what he said in 17-something. But guess what? The Menchus Chiduch lives between 1801 and 1857. It's 1804, and here's what he says. On this matter that bloodshedding, right, you have to die rather than violate. Um, Right, it seems uh, right. It seems obvious. Right, if 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 they if they put you know they threaten Jews and say we'll kill you, to, right, if you don't commit these abortions. In a case where the abortion would not be to save the mother, life of the mother, just they're they're holding a gun to your head and said commit this commit this abortion or else. Obviously, says the Menchah you wouldn't have to give up your life rather than commit the abortion. Because we can't ask the question, right? who says your blood is redder? Because the fetus is not a nefesh. If we can choose the fetus over the mother as a third party, um, right? you, can save, you, can, you can choose the fetus yourself over the fetus. And then he says, And the same thing is true of a trefa. Came into Biarti Lael, the law of Once I explained that a trefa isn't really a nefesh, right? So then the whole svara of, um, of my chazit is, um, right, is, uh, it, go, it goes away, and therefore you can, therefore you can kill the trefa to save your life. But it needs, um, it needs work. Okay, so the Nebuda says that um, nobody ever said such a thing. Nobody would ever suggest such a thing that you could kill a trefa to save a shalim. The Menchus Chinuch says, obvious. Trefa is not a nefesh. Okay, so now who's right? Well, so it seems possible that the that the Nodibuta is not so right that no one ever suggested this. Because if you go back to the Me'iri and Sanhedrin, the Me'iri says the following, and you'll see, right, and I'm going to introduce this, some of this, we should put trigger warnings, 
Some of this really doesn't comport with um, modern sensibilities. Uh, here we go. Yireli, but I, I don't think there's any point in avoiding it. Uh, it seems to me, if there's a, a caravan of women, and one among them is a known, is a known active prostitute. Then he says, if, 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 if um, brigands surround them and says, give us, right, give us one of you right, for our sexual pleasure, or we're going to end up, we're going to rape all of you. So we say, give, her, give that one, because she obviously doesn't, what won't feel the sexual humiliation as much as the others. Okay, right, that's, this is where we're very much not in tune with model sensibilities. That's not our issue, right? But you can keep that in mind. Then he says, "Vain sir, Glomar, you don't even bother saying, Vesia shall be Adam if there's a caravan of break, you know, of men and women, trefa, and one of them is a trefa. And again, the same question comes: give us, give us one of you to kill, or we'll kill all of you. Shaim Saru, give him over. right? Valia Hergo, let them not be killed. Sharia Hergo Pater, right? So the Minchaschinach's idea is um, is preceded by the um, by the Meiri. Now, Miri then backs away from his claim about the prostitute. He says, maybe she did tshuva. How do you know? Uh, right. And then he quotes Yerushalmi in the end. And then he says, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm, not, um, I'm not 100% sure about the trefa issue either. But he beat the, uh, he beat the, uh, the he anticipated the Minchus Chinuch's idea. So the Buddha is not entirely correct. When he says, um, the, um, the Missed something, right? And as the um, as some other people say, right? Because the the uh, Meiri wasn't lar- largely was not in print in the Nodibutus time, so he just didn't have access to the Meiri. Okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Um, so we could say that we find the Minchas Kinnah's logic compelling, and this right, and and that we don't go with Ruchaim and the Rambam. Because that sounds right. right? So it should be obvious that you can that you don't have to give up your life for abortion, and you don't have to um, you don't have to give up your life to save a trefa. Or we could say, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we're worried about, right? We're claiming now. Let's if you want to you want to claim a fetus, okay, fetus not yet born yet, right? Doesn't have choices, only a future things like that. But a trefa has, let's say, a year of rich life before them, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, being loved, loving. What we are saying, right, is fundamentally, right, is that the question, whose blood is redder, is answerable. And once you allow it to be answered by a trefa, now trefa is, the problem is that, so trefa, is trefa a practical category? Anyone will die within a year? Or is trefa a technical category? What if we decided to think of trefos as the way we do in animals, where we, to find anybody who has a puncture in a particular organ as a trefa, no matter how long they'll live. So we, right, we're still going to say about you're a trefa, logically, you can't do it. What if you're probably a trefa? Right, so we end up, right, if you, once it's, in, so there, there is a criterion, right, we can say no, it really depends on the different halachic question is, is it a capital crime to kill this person or not? But we've opened up the whole slippery slope. So my goal is, right, my goal in constructing the halacha of triage is to prevent these sorts of calculations. And I think that's exactly what Ruchaim did. Ruchaim said, by, by Ruchaim asking, saying the question was, is this a sin that involves the loss of a life? And as long as any of the results of this sin can lead to the loss of a life, then you can't make the decision. So says Ruchaim, 
that um, one of the examples of one of the one of the examples of a case where you kill somebody but you don't get killed is if you hire an assassin. If you hire an assassin, the other person who's dead is certainly an effish. So if you ask me the question, whatever the crime is that you violate, which doesn't carry the capital crime, uh, by hiring an assassin, that's the same crime, says Rechaim, that you violate by committing abortion. That's the same crime that you violate by killing a trefa. And therefore, since I don't know who the victim is, the answer Rechaim says is that I can't do it. So the advantage of Rechaim is that you can see the slippery slope starting already. Right, the Notabuda said it's unimaginable anybody would ask this question about Trefa Nashalim. Right, he thinks that this is obviously included in the moral intuition of who says your blood is redder. But the Minchah thought it was obvious. The Miri thought maybe in one version, even ain't Sarah you don't have to bother saying it. And then once we do that, we allow the same things in terms of uh, in terms of adultery as well, right? But you know, and it's and we start getting a situation where we throw the prostitute to be murdered. Because their life is less valuable, so it's very right. So I, I am a strong proponent of the slippery slope fear, and I think that there's a risk, right? Maybe we think that you, right? Maybe the maybe the um, maybe the, the has come with a really good example, and or the Miri, and it's going to work out that we haven't constructed a legal system in such a way that if somebody threatens to kill you, if, right, if you don't perform abortions. That as of now the halachah is herig yavor, it would be better if we could find a way out of that. As against that, there's the risk that we're going to keep on choosing among lives in bad ways. And I think Rav says, let's right. If you really think it's obvious that the fetus case is different, and I don't know that it is. That's a challenge in its own right. Then, um, right? Then, um, okay, we'll see if we can find a technical workaround like Rodef. But if we can't, Rav says, I'm, I'm more comfortable. I'm more comfortable leaving it the way it is. I'll take the chances there are cases that are Yerag Val Yavar when they shouldn't be in order to avoid the risk of, of making of people choosing among lies when they shouldn't. Okay, now I want to put the stakes of this um, as explicitly as possible. And let's, um, let's back up to something I said very originally. Right? What I said very originally is that what I'm trying to construct is a halachic ethic. And part of the, the grounds of that is it has to be something that um, is universally uh, universally accessible, meaning that anybody could derive it on their own. So that's fine because we're making fundamentally moral arguments, and also has to apply equally to all moral agents. So what the stakes are between the Rav Chaim approach and the non-Rav Chaim approach, and at core between the Noda Bihuda approach, I believe, although I don't know the Noda Bihuda would have drawn this implication, but I hope he would have, and the Minchas Chinuch approach is the following. So here are all our here are, are the cases which the Rambam says. Are um, you you violate you violate you violate something, but it's not a capital crime to kill them. So one one case Ram says is right that if you that you use deadly force to save somebody else when deadly force wasn't necessary, right? You killed the pursuer unnecessarily. You could have saved him just by throwing a net over him, whatever it may be. The Ram says you're a bloodshedder, the chayav mita, and you deserve death. But you don't get killed. So now we have a, a name for the sin. The name for the sin is Shofech Damim. Okay, so here the Ramah says that you get the death penalty if you kill if you kill people X and Y. But if you kill, um, if you hire an assassin, or you send a slave, or you tie your friend up and leave him in front of a lion and you and the lion kills him, or if you commit suicide, all these are Shofech Damim. But you don't get executed by the courts. 
Okay, right, and he quotes the Pesukim to show you this. Okay, then the Ramah says the same thing. Right, this is, right, if, even if you kill the uh, Goseis, you get killed for. But even the trefa right now is walking around, but you, but there is medically indicated that they have a specific bodily condition that will kill them within a year or a specific organ failure that will kill them within a year. You are exempt from human punishment, but it seems pretty clear that you are liable for, right? But and therefore this is a violation of Shrikut Damim. So the final case in the end is Israel Sharag Ger Toshav. So a Jew who kills a non-Jew. Right? So the, the halacha, which we can talk about why that is or why that isn't, the halacha is that if you kill a Jew, it's a capital crime. If you kill a non-Jew, it's a um, it's not a capital crime. But implies that it is still a violation of Shrikut Damim, as it should be, right? Shafeh Dama Adam. Like um, okay, now we could talk about, we can do apologetics, non-apologetics about why this is the case. We point out the death penalty isn't really a practical consideration in halacha, and the Meshachachma, in one of his interpretations, two interpretations of Mechilta, says that killing a non-Jew is worse than killing a Jew, and the reason you don't get the death penalty is because the death penalty is atonement. You don't deserve the atonement. Okay, let's bracket all that for now. There's no question that there have been people in Jewish history who would have said, right, who if allowed, if allowed to make the decision between Jews and non-Jews as to whom to save, would have said, it seems clear to me that we save the Jew over the non-Jew. And we'll see that there are still people writing in the 20th century who, right, who imply that. Um, that's, right, that's a category that pre-exists the Mission Hurriot, right? The Mission Hurriot is only talking about within, within people who have, uh, right, who have a, uh, a halachic Jewish identity. Uh, even if they're in a, you know, in a problematic, um, for lack of a better term, cast. But if you take the approach of Rav Chaim and Nodi Behuda, so then, the, right, regardless of how you explain the fact, it's irrelevant to the question of triage and life-saving ethics because, um, right, all we care about is, is it a violation of Shrikut Damim? And the answer is killing a non-Jew is definitely a violation of Shrikut Damim, and therefore you can't do it. Right, because, because the legislative level prevents you from having it. So if, if halacha is going to have any participation in the general ethical conversation, it seems to me it has to reach this result. It seems to me that you can see, obviously, by the logic that is utilized in, um, by the Minchas by the, um, um, that, um that if you allow killing a trefa to save a shalem, that you're going to end up allowing... Um, allowing choosing the Jew of the non-Jew, and then you're no longer engaged in the modern ethical conversation. So for that reason, among others, it seems to me clear that the way to go to construct a lachic ethic has to be with Rav Chaim as Nodeh Behuda, and I also, that also seems to me to, um, to be the real meaning of the underlying phrase, uh, which does, you know, is, I think it's supposed to be a rhetorical question, and there isn't supposed to be an answer, uh, there isn't supposed to be an answer to it. But these are the stakes, I want to make the stakes clear and explain why it is that I want uh, why it is that I want to reach the answer that I do. Um, so that's going to be the basis for everything is the claim that we have such a principle again on formulated ontological equality um, and that it eliminates all distinctions among human beings at that level. All right, right, because the question is always asked legislatively as opposed to in terms of the specific individuals.
there's a recognition that there are cases where that um, right where legislative where thinking legislatively yields odd results, and the goal is to construct the system in such a way that it minimizes the odd results, recognizing that the odd results for some people are not odd results for other, and that's the difference between the Dota and the Minchas Chinuch. Um, we have a bias towards of right one of our definitions of odd results is probably going to be results that make it impossible for doctors to work for orthodox doctors to work in hospitals. Uh, Rabbi Weiss in the video I just quoted said, and we'll come come to this again. He said that he thought that enabling doctors to work within the moral norms of hospitals and therefore to enable them to function professionally is sort of pikuach nefesh because lots of people will because the world needs doctors and the Jewish people need doctors. And so to cut the Jewish people off from the medical profession is a kind of pikuach nefesh that he thought would drive us to interpret halacha in that way. Um, so I have, I think I have a, a great treat to, uh, to attach myself to on this issue. Um, okay. Uh, last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll take questions. At, um, so just a preview of uh, coming attraction, what we're going to do on uh, Thursday to start with is this issue of transferring ventilators from one person to another, although it is sort of unprecedented on the, on the, the scale that might or might not have become necessary in COVID-19 different places, actually the question has been asked twice. Um, it was asked once in what I think was a theoretical construction, although I don't know for sure, by Rizalmi Nachemia Goldberg in what became an, a, a prize-winning essay, uh, in which he constructed a very elaborate case of a woman, on a, a woman dying on a respirator and a man brought in who was dying of injuries, but he can be an organ donor if you keep him alive and therefore he can keep a third party alive. And the question is, can you take the respirator from the dying woman uh, and give it to the dying man in order to save the third party? And we'll see Rizal and Chaimei Goldberg's essay. And then um, some years later, I believe, um, Rizal and Chaimei's essay was radically critiqued uh, by Rabbi Halperin. Um, and we'll, we'll, so probably Thursday we'll focus primarily on, the, on Rabbi, Rabbi Goldberg's essay and Rabbi Halperin's critique. And then some years later, a doctor in Johannesburg sent a question to Rabbi um, Moshe Sternbuch. He may have massaged the question so Rabbi Sternberg would answer or not, not 100% clear to me, about a hospital which had only one, um, I think it's a ventilator, one lung, I don't think it's an iron lung, one lung machine. Um, and the question was, right, could they refuse it? Could they set up, a, the hospital had a protocol where they would turn down patients who wouldn't live very long on the respirator because they expected other patients to come in. And the question was, were they, right, was he allowed to go along and refuse to treat the first patients who came in on the, um, on the basis of the hospital protocol, which assumed that other patients would come in later and need the machine more and that it would be illegal to, right, or impossible to transfer the machine to those patients when they came in. Um, so the doctor sent this question to Rabbi Sternbuch. Rabbi Sternbuch then, then sent the question around to lots of other people, and we'll get to see, probably next week, we'll get to see um, a, a series of their answers to these questions. And out of that, hopefully, we'll emerge. Uh, we'll come back to the merge and uh, construct our own approach. Okay, uh, I have talked all the way through this time. Um, so now I should take as many questions as there are. Um, so at this point, um, anyone who has any questions should please ask. Um. Hi, Rick Um So uh, a couple of things. So 
wondering is, um, I know we talked about how to define the trade. You didn't, you didn't want to get into it too much, but um, uh, assuming that it's somebody who's going to die within a year, does that mean that somebody who's going to die within a year without the best medical intervention or somebody who will die within a year, you know, assuming the someone, will, someone will die within a year regardless of medical intervention. And we'll see that some people will try and have a, they have to die within a year of a specific organ failure, or at least of a specific underlying medical condition and not just of old age. Okay. Um, and then another thing, maybe I missed this, but um, could it be that perhaps that once somebody is a trefa, uh, so we're not talking about killing them, but um, it could just be that perhaps refraining from giving them medical care is, a, um, is maybe okay as opposed to actually... Um, right, so this uh, approach will come up with, but so the fundamental thing is, let's take it back. We have, when it comes to murder, we have a text which says you can't choose. When it comes to life-saving, we have two texts that say you can choose. Right? I want to claim that the fundamental text is the one about murder, and therefore I, the, the, one, the text about saving your own life first is an exception, and the text about saving some lives before others is, is not halakhic or not relevant. Because I want the underlying principle to be that it doesn't make a difference. You can't choose one life over another. It's, right, your distinction assumes that there's something, right, what Ravosha said, right, that there's something different about murder. But choosing whom to save, right, is not the same moral problem. Okay. Right? I, I am trying to reject that. At the same time, I think you're going to say, but my intuition seems to, right, you're, you have moral intuitions that it should be possible to make choices among patients in the hospital on some basis. So the question is going to be, can we construct a way of making those choices that doesn't violate the notion that, of ontological equality? That's what I'm going for. Okay. Um, and then one other thing with respect to the uh, doctors um, making uh, choices that what you brought up at the end, um, could it be that let's say the hospital owns a piece of equipment um, that um, the doctor by not putting somebody on that piece of equipment in violation of the rules of the hospital is not actually choosing uh, anything. The doctor is just, um, uh, is just sort of applying the hospital policy with respect to the hospital's equipment. Um, so it's not actually the doctor's choice. Right, so that is, um, what I would say, we'll, we'll, we'll have to try and create, what, and what kind of space, I would say I have an allergy to Nuremberg defenses. I was just following orders. So there's yeah. gotta be a point. Well, it's not that. It, it, it's that uh, I, I, I have to save you using all of uh, everything that's available to me, but that piece of equipment is not available to me. That piece of equipment belongs to the hospital. Um, so I don't have the choice uh, to give it to you. And if I were to give it to you, then I would actually be stealing. Well, let's be clear, right? You're in a, you know, we'll take the extreme cases, Yomazik or whatever, right? You know, you're in a hospital, and hospital policy says you can't use expensive equipment for Jews. No, you're not going to do that, right? Obviously not. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got to think about that. All right. Right. So there's going right, so to be a boundary, right? You know, I, I, you know, I lost the I lost the argument, right? Because I, you know, because I, because I, because I mentioned Nazis, but right, but you know, but you could say right, American South, right? American South, African Americans, right? There, there are obviously going to be boundaries, right? As just saying that 
well, you're just, you're just following rules is not going to be enough. There is, I think, a value in allowing doctors to participate in a system that we think is fundamentally moral. Right? I think right, the challenge is, is there a halachic way to acknowledge the difference between a fundamentally moral system making an immoral choice and a system that undermines morality of the entire Right of the entire survey. That I think that that's what we have to look for. We know we can also set the boundaries. Of, is it Yorhag Valyavor? Is it not Yorhag Valyavor? Right. That assumes that Rav Chaim's right. That there are passive things that are Yorhag Valyavor. And I think it's, that's another reason why I think Rav Chaim is very important. Because I think it's very dangerous to say, oh no, you know, pass, passivity is never Yorhag Valyavor. Right. I think there are cases where it clearly where it clearly should be. Um, right. So I think that right. So those are the right, those are exactly the right questions. Right. I, my goal is to see can I keep that fundamental principle intact. And yet in all the places where our intuition seems to say that at least there, need, there must be space for different answers, or maybe the answer really is different, right? As many as possible. So, right, so we have Rodef. Rodef lets us deal with the abortion of saved lives of the mother case. We have a Chichimach that lets you deal with the two people, right? With the two canteens in the desert case. Now I have ventilators, right? And let's say, you know, ask the question on the, the sharpest possible way. I could treat the first patient who comes in no matter what, and that way, a week from now, nobody will be alive. Or I, can, or, or I can have some kind of prioritization among triage, which means either leaving some people untreated at a moment when there's a ventilator available, or taking, literally taking a ventilator off one patient and moving it to another. And that way, 10 people are alive next week. Right? So are we really okay halakhically, right, saying that we have to take the approach which has no people alive? Right? Probably not. But can we do? But maybe we have to, right? That's right. That's 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 the space I'm trying to work in. Okay. By the way, you mentioned uh, iron lung, and iron lung is a type of ventilator, and, and iron lung is just what's a, uh, is that what's called I think a negative pressure ventilator, whereas the modern ventilators are called positive positive pressure uh, ventilators, but they basically serve the same purpose. Um. Okay. I'm not gonna. But I. I, I I think that what's being discussed here is not the the polio, you know, iron lung, right, which was a very complicated machine, you know, as a, you know, which involved the whole person being immobilized while being conscious. I don't think that was what we're talking about. It doesn't matter. You're right. Okay. Okay. Thank you, as always. Uh, other questions? Okay. Uh, on Thursday, Thursday, I intend to to talk a lot less. Uh, I, you know, the, the more the more philosophy there is, I think, the more uh, the more I tend the more I tend to lecture because it's not as as rooted in the uh, in the text. Uh, thank you all for uh, for showing up as always, and I hope I'll see you uh, Thursday. And um, I guess have a serious Yomazi Corona and a happy uh, Yomazi Smooch. <laughs>